Welcome to the 24 Stories podcast that aims to educate, inspire and help build brands. I'm your host, Stephen Ryan, founder of 24 Stories, and I'll be joined each week by guests from a variety of industries here to tell you how they built their brands. Welcome to episode five of the 24 Stories podcast. This week, we're going to be looking at the world of politics and a bit of finance as well thrown in. I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform and also a TD here in Corksome Central, Minister Michael McGrath. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you very much, Stephen. Delighted to be here and uh, that we finally finally got to sit down and have a chat. Really looking and, forward to it. No, it's good timing. Um, I know we're com- coming into a busy month for you, but before we, we talk about December and what's ahead, I suppose I want to go back in the backstory, Michael. Where, where, where did it all kind of kick off, yeah, like in terms of the interest in politics? That really came, I think, from quite a young age. So my parents wouldn't have been uh, active in politics or anything, but they did in rearing myself and, and my siblings give us an interest in current affairs. Yeah. Watching the news would have been encouraged, you know, going to school, Morning Ireland would be on, there yeah. would be, the echo would be in the house and you'd be, be picking it up and reading it. And in school, I loved history um, and had a really good history teacher uh, in secondary school, uh, Dimp Naquil, um, who definitely gave me that love of Irish history in particular and that period around the foundation of our state, you know, the fight for our independence and uh, yeah. the civil war and all that followed and the setting up of the Irish state. So I was fascinated by that period of our history. So that just grew on me over time. Grew up in Passage West. That's what I w- would regard as my, my, my hometown. Your hometown. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, grew, grew up there. We lived for a number of years in an estate called Ardmore Estate. Mm. Um, so I was very young when, when we moved in there. And it was a great little community, yeah. um, local yeah. authority housing estate. And the sections that we moved into were, were very new at the time. Yeah. And uh, it was the first home that my parents would have had any real stability in yeah. uh, that they weren't, you know, renting privately. Yeah. And uh, great neighbours, friends, very young, vibrant community, lots of young children, you know, there. My playing own football on the road kind of stuff. football on the road, street football yeah. on the triangle in the, yeah. the central area of, of Ardmore Estate and soccer club would have played, you know, parish leagues on the green there. And uh, yeah. so, yeah, very, very good upbringing. So, we did move from there uh, in the mid-1980s. Then my dad grew up in a small farm in Bantry and he always had a yearning for a more quiet environment. Okay, and back out so, to the countryside. Yeah, so there was a great scheme at the time uh, where if you gave back uh, a local authority dwelling that mm. you were renting, yeah. there was a grant of £5,000. And I remember they bought a little cottage um, situated really between Passage West and Monkstown, a rural area, yeah, Laurel yeah. Hill, Rathanker, that area. Yeah. Uh, and I think they paid £16,000, got a grant, managed to get a loan and bought the home. So that's where the rest of my upbringing was. I was um, I was only about nine or so when we moved there. Uh, that was a very different environment, rural setting near to the golf course uh, yeah. in Monkstown and would have spent a lot of time with my dad there, we'd go looking for golf balls and yeah. we'd, we'd sell them and I would do caddying uh, as oh, well. Brilliant. So, yeah, that was a great upbringing. And um, and probably spending a lot of time around maybe adults and listening to them and, you know, being yeah, curious as well. Definitely, there was an element of that when it came to the caddying. Yeah. And so m- my late brother, Sean, would have been the first one to start caddying 
and uh, the the golfer would, would would ring home in those days to see if Sean was available, and my dad would say, "Yeah, he is," and his brother was available too. If any of your your <laughs> pro good. golfers wanted someone, and that would have been Seamus. Yeah, and then it, uh, eventually it got kind of passed down to me, uh, and I would have been brought along. And yeah, you're spending four hours uh, on a golf course listening to adults um, who all would have had political views yeah, and who all. Yeah would have been involved in business and yeah. I think that definitely did have an influence uh, on me undoubtedly and um, but I really enjoyed it it was you know a great a great place to to be brought up uh, in Passage West and then and then laterally um, between Passage West and Monkstone we had you know great time and where did you go to secondary school then so I went to secondary school in in Passage West St Peter's Community School yeah so I um went to the, the convent initially uh, yeah. and I think in those days you went there up to and including first class and then second class we would have went to Skull Column Kill uh, Boys School uh, of course they eventually all uh, amalgamated Can't into one on Star of the Sea School but in those days it was a boys school and actually St. Peter's opened its doors in September 1988 and we were the very first group of first years mm. uh, going into to a brand new school I remember Mary O'Rourke, the former minister, coming down doing the official opening. So that's where I went to school and uh, I did did five years there. Transition year was uh, was coming into the equation at that point, but it was optional and uh, I didn't do it. Yeah. Um, and did the Leaving Cert at the age of 16. Wow, that was young, wasn't it? It was young, yeah. So did you go into college at, at the age of 16, going on 17 or what, what way did it work? Yeah, I would have been 17 by the time I started. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, My birthday is the 23rd of August, so I would have or turned just, 17 yeah, yeah. Uh, before I started. But it did mean that I finished a four-year degree uh, and was still 20, you know, Whoa, turning yeah, 21. Yeah. So it was young and sure at that stage you really don't know what you want to do. Yeah. Um, but I did, I did commerce. I would have been the first person from my own family to to go to college yeah. um you know my parents wouldn't have had an extensive formal education like so many others they would yeah. have left school at a young age probably around 12 13 I'd say no older than that you know my mum was she would have worked in very early days and then when she got married and kids came along she would have been a full-time housewife or yeah. home carer as yeah. we might say nowadays yeah. and my dad and uh, did lots of diff- different jobs um, he would have been a, a labourer, worked in construction in London before he came home and married. Uh, my mum worked here in construction. He worked with Casey's Furniture Store here in Cork as a, a van driver. And then he worked with an insulation company who were contractors on site at Pfizer, Cape Insulation. But unfortunately, he became became very ill in, in the mid-1980s oh and um, almost died uh, of kidney failure in the mid-80s. Uh, thankfully, he didn't because... Like we were all young, I was very young at the yeah, time, yeah. Um, and he survived. Um, he got another ten years and died of cancer ultimately at the age of sixty-two uh, in nineteen ninety-five. But still a young man I would, I do often look back and say, God, like if I didn't have those ten years with him from yeah. when he became really sick, yeah, he did recover and had a decent quality of life subsequently, but couldn't work. couldn't work again. Yeah. So of course that had a financial impact. So yeah. from really the age of eight, nine. For me, the only income in our house was social welfare. Yeah. It was invalidity, a pension that he was on at the time. Uh, so there wasn't much money, but we weren't very different to so many others around us. At that you know, time that, as was, well. that was the yeah. reality when I look back and I know it, you know, it must have been really tough on my parents. And sometimes you're probably oblivious to that. As a, as a teenager, as a kid, you probably don't think of the finances. It's only when you get older, isn't it? 
Definitely. And, and sure, we had nothing really to compare it with, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, the people we knew and people around us would all have been in, in a similar situation. Now, many, of course, were, were working and so yeah. on. But look, we wanted for nothing that we really, really yeah. needed. You know, yeah. there might have been things we'd have loved to have, have but had, but, but couldn't afford them. Uh, but we wanted for no essential. And uh, our parents gave us, you know, plenty of love and attention and uh, a really great upbringing. And, uh, and they were very happy together. And, you know, there were five of us, five uh, siblings. I yeah. was one of five. So, um, yeah, very, very happy memories of, of childhood growing up in Passage West amongst them. And would you have done a part-time job then to kind of bring extra income in? Or? Golf course, really, was so the part-time job. Was that job. yourself and your two brothers both doing yeah, that? Yeah, 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 just doing the caddying. And yeah, uh, yeah. I did spend a lot of time with my dad. We'd go down, we'd walk the fields, we'd, you know, search through the ponds and the ditches. We'd yeah. find golf balls yeah. and... You, you might go down some days after a big competition and uh, you'd find a load of balls very easily. And very then good, yeah. he built up a relationship with um, Mahan Golf Club. He got yeah. to know the, the manager there. My dad would have been, you know, very, uh, very thorough. He'd wash all the golf balls and they'd, we'd bring them all up then and we'd sell them. I think it was typically for three, three for a pound. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was a bit of know, an entrepreneur. You, you might be so bringing good. 60, 70, yeah. 80, 80 golf balls up and yeah. you'd make a few bob. And we spent, Great time together. So I have very, very fond memories of, of that. And as you look back, you know, those yeah. memories become more precious yeah. um, when you don't have somebody with you any longer. Did he see you going into college? He saw me start college. Yeah. Uh, he did. Yeah, he died in, in 95. So I did a leaving cert uh, in 1993. So he did. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's, he would have seen myself and then Seamus both start college and and do you know do well academically right. and he would have taken great great pride in that because we had opportunities that that he simply didn't have and yeah. many many others like him uh, and like my mum from that generation just didn't have the opportunity but you know I think it was a reflection of, of how Ireland was changing investment in education yeah. more opportunity mm. arising more access you know mm. more supports uh, you know we would have qualified for additional support in, in college because we run from a very, very low income family. There would have been some money available through the college to help us. Yeah. And then once I started doing exams, I started getting scholarships and it all helped uh, to keep the show on the road. Did the four years and, you know, I, I, I did work hard there because yeah. I, I guess I, I realised it was an opportunity and I realised I was very, very fortunate to get an opportunity. And when you went to college, it was a level playing field. It may not have been a level playing field up until then. But when you got there, it was, and I was able to do what I could do then. Yeah, it didn't matter where you came from at that point. No. Everyone's on the same level, aren't it they? It didn't yeah. matter. It didn't yeah. matter, you know, the quality of the teaching was yeah. the same for everybody. Yeah. Um, the library access was the same for everybody. Yeah. You know, we had the, the, the course material. So it was a level playing field. And uh, I think that definitely opened up a whole new opportunity for me because I, I, I had I had the drive, I had the determination and you know, I think I had enough ability to, to do well. And when you came out, I, I presume so, when you were doing commerce, you, you focused on finance and you... Yeah, you, so I did um, did the four years and I suppose to really understand my backstory, like I should, I should say and put on the table when I was young, I would have been really, really shy and I would still be a shy person in many ways. Okay, you know, if I yeah. walked into a room on my own, I'd be kind of hesitant. I would be naturally shy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in school, if you had told me and my classmates and teachers that I would become the a politician and <laughs> I would become somebody yeah. used to public speaking. Uh, I would have said, no, no way, not a hope. 
but you know over time I think you grow in confidence mm. and mm. it's life experience uh, gives you that and yeah. you know a little bit of success my very first election was in college I went for um, Commerce and Economic Society vice auditor position there were I think three other candidates uh, my first election I had to go into classes and speak yeah uh, and how did and that feel myself. yeah it took me out of my comfort zone for sure yeah but it was a great experience and it, it worked out well uh, I won that election and then kind of went on from there you know so when you finished like was there any kind of placement program or in- graduate wasn't. internships or anything like that I would have had, I suppose, contact with, with, with companies maybe from kind of third year on. I did yeah. a, a a short few days in London with Guinness. They had a program uh, and they opened up an opportunity to, to some students to do that. So uh, I took part in that. And then the recruitment, you know, takes place mm. in early fourth year. It was it used to be called the milk ground. And that's when businesses would come in and they'd make a pitch and, and they'd open up an application process yeah. I suppose for me at that stage the question was would I want to stay in Cork I think at that point I had I had an inkling but certainly not a definite view that I wanted to go into politics and but I, I wanted to stay in Cork I would have been a home bird yeah. loved my city my county wanted to stay in Cork I was still quite young anyway and I, I thought the best way to do that and to get a good qualification would be to sign a training contract to be a chartered accountant and yeah. I got a few offers, so I had some options and I joined KPMG here across the street on the South Mall in the city. Man. Yeah. So that was a big moment, I'd say, in the host then as well. Was it to say, you know, in Cork, the Mall was always seen as the, the place to go working, wasn't it? Exactly. And my dad would always have joked with me, yeah. oh, you'll end up in the Mall, yeah. you know. Yeah. And uh, it was a big moment, you know, somebody getting dressed up every day. Yeah. Throwing on a, a, a shirt and tie and suit and going into a professional office environment. Yeah was a new frontier for, for us. Um, absolutely it was. And uh, I, you know, really enjoyed it. Did uh, did four years there. Met my wife, Sarah, there. Uh, she was a trainee as well uh, in the office. Yeah. And um, uh, enjoyed the experience. Didn't always love the work, you know. Yeah. Like everybody else. Like anything, yeah. I think I, I, I would have made up my mind that after the, the training period, I wanted to move on and try something else. But while I was there, I took my first step into electoral politics, which was a town council election for passage. in Passage West in Monkstown in 1999. So I was 22 years of age, contesting my first election, and I um, was, you know, still doing uh, exams and doing the, the training contract in KPMG. That was quite young. Like, if I think back, like being 22, the other candidates must have been a lot older than you, were they? Uh, generally, yeah, and that definitely helped because there's always an appetite, I think, yeah. for. Yeah. For someone new and, and fresh and, and certainly a young person and particularly at a local level. But it was a great starting point because you didn't need a huge number of votes. Yeah. I'll always remember the number. Like I, I think I got 474 votes, but probably 150 to 200 would have done to get elected. Yeah. So it was very manageable. It was doable. There were nine seats, you know, in yeah. a small area. Now, the body itself had little or no power, really. Mm. But it got you into the environment of meeting public officials having to state your case, having the ability to put down motions and also learning from people around you who are far, far more experienced. And um, I would have been involved in, you know, different community groups and the local GA club Mm -hmm. and so on as well. And yeah, I think at that point, once I got elected there, I I really did get the bug and knew that I wanted to, to progress further. And then I had to try and navigate how my professional life 
could balance which I had with to continue. Yeah, mm. which I had to continue because, you know, there was no certain mm. path for me in politics. Fianna Fáil had well-established TDs in Cork South Central, you mm. know, the current Taoiseach. Yeah, um, John Dennehy. John Dennehy and Bad O'Keefe yeah. would have been the, the main players at the time. And uh, so I went for the, the town council, got elected, and then supposed to take it chronologically, finish my, my training contract, and an opportunity came up in Red FM. And that was when it started, Red FM, was it? That was the very start of Red FM. I would have joined in September uh, 2001. Yeah. And it went on air uh, in the uh, the middle of January. That was exciting, uh, I'd 2022. Say, was it? Very exciting for a young fellow. It was a yeah. great job to get, you know, financial controller, a new startup radio station that had a youth mandate. Yeah. The license from the broadcasting authority was, you know, 15 to 34. Yeah. But the music had to be young and yeah. trendy and... You know, you had the, the red patrollers, the cars, and yeah. I got a company car. And like I was, you know, very young. So that was all, that was all fantastic. Worked with Henry Condon, who has since passed away. Yeah, and who was a kind of, I suppose, a legend in that industry. Legend, brought a wealth of experience yeah. from the UK. Corkman originally worked, you know, Virgin in the yeah. UK and so on. Uh, really dynamic. And I got good commercial experience. I mean, I had to report to a board every month. Yeah. And while I was a qualified accountant, I was quite young. Mm. And there were, you know, big hitters there. Anthony Dynan from Thomas Crosby Holdings. Yeah. You had the Nathans here in Cork were investors. FM 104 in Dublin were investors. The late Jamaican, the concert promoter. Yeah. Uh, big name. Lovely, lovely man. Yeah. Um, got on really well with him and with Pierce Farrell. You'd senior players who I had to, you know, go in every month and report to on the financials of, uh, of the business. And very often and. It, it won't be any state secret. Uh, yeah. Had to look for more money, you yeah. know, cash calls. Yeah. You got to put in more investment. You know, this is going to take time to build up the advertising and to become yeah. uh, profitable and become successful. And they all knew that, to be fair. And they were incredibly supportive. But, you know, I had to answer all the questions about our costs and what we were doing to, to manage the cost base and how we were trying to build revenues and invest in the advertising, invest in the brand uh so myself and Henry and the team had uh, had great fun. I'd imagine uh, so, so. I really loved it. Yeah, it was yeah. a super, yeah. super job and a great experience. And um, yeah. A lot of it. characters around at that time as well. Charlie Wolf and... That's right. You yeah. know, and obviously Stevie and stuff were in there in the Stevie early days. Stevie was there, yeah. Stevie G was there, yeah. Charlie and uh, yeah. And Lan O'Connor from the newsroom is still yeah. there, you know. Yeah. And people yeah. who still work in advertising there, Tanya and uh, Gráinne and... Yeah. There are still some of the the originals yeah, uh, yeah. there 20 years later. Yeah. And of course, um, it's a very different station because you were talking about looking for finance and getting money. They were the small player back then compared to your Cox 96 FM and stuff like that. So a lot of people don't realize that from 20 years ago, they were they were very little market share compared to what they, they have now. Yeah, they were the challenger. Yeah. They were the underdog, you know, mm-hmm. and 96 FM. It was and to be fair remains a hugely successful brand yeah, with yeah. massive loyalty. Yeah. You know, and uh, it, it would have taken Red, you know, some time yeah. uh, to really establish itself. Mm. And then you have the, the JNLR book comes out, as you yeah. know, every, is it every quarter? Every quarter. Uh, the yeah. JNLR book. And uh, of course, that is the, um, that is kind of the Bible then for yeah. advertising. Yeah. That they want to know, well, how many listeners do you have? And the metric is the JNLR book. And there would have been some, good ones and then yeah. some ones that maybe weren't as good um, but it's gone on to become a really successful station a wonderful brand and uh, 
you know, delighted to, to, to say I we played a small part in the very start of it uh, in, in setting it up with the team, yeah. And where did you go after Red FM then? Yeah, so an opportunity came up in UCC uh, as head of MIS and it was, so not an academic role, it was in based in the finance office in UCC yeah. and I went for that. I didn't think I'd get it, but I guess I, I looked at it from the perspective of first it was advancement it was a more it was a, quite a senior role yeah it was giving me different experience mm. and also i felt that being in the public sector might be more accommodating and it might be easier to to develop um my interest in politics, politics. Uh, uh there so i got that role and i spent uh, spent a couple of years there but in parallel the uh, the politics really was developing and i was elected to uh, to Cork County Council and the nature of Cork County Council meetings is that they're held during the day okay, uh, yeah. and you know I had a senior role in UCC well paid yeah. uh, permanent role and at the same time I was trying to juggle um, becoming established as a councillor with an eye on going to the Dáil and uh, we had a young son at the time um, uh, and I, I had to make a call on it and I made a call on it in in 2005 so at that stage I was elected to the to the council I had a very very good job in, in UCC well paid yeah. we had a young son and Sarah and I would have discussed it uh, she was a qualified accountant herself yeah. and said look I'm going to gonna go for it I follow my dream I'm going to have a go and I cut the cord UCC I did some part time work I got some part time work separately from a, a research body that they have um, but then I, I left that then in 2005 completely and, was, was uh, bit, and just went for it Was it scary at the time oh, to, sure. to give up a full time role that was I, I'm guessing was you know well It paid, wasn't it, it didn't feel secure. as scary then as it looks now Yeah You know it yeah. looks madness now Yeah When you look back in your mid 40s and Yeah You know you've taken on a lot more responsibility yeah. um, uh, in terms of family and Yeah You know maintaining a house and just the need for security and so on but yeah. Look, I, I mean, I, I suppose I backed myself. I, I had yeah. the belief to just go for it. Uh, and I did. And uh, it was scary. And at that time, I wasn't even a confirmed Dáil candidate for Fianna Fáil. I got a stroke of luck in that there was a change to the boundary of Cork South Central. And those days, Ballancolic was in Cork South Central. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. And there was a boundary change. And Matt O'Keefe faced a very, very difficult decision because literally half his vote was gone. And yeah. he decided to stay in Ballancolleg and to move to Cork Northwest. And so that opened up a vacancy in um, Cork South Central on the Fianna Fáil ticket. Yeah. And uh, we had Michal Martin, we had John Dennehy, and there was a need for a third candidate, a county candidate. Yeah. Uh, so John would have been city-based as would as would Bishop's Michal. Town area, yeah. Yeah, Michal then would have been, you know, Ballinlock and Turner's Cross and so mm. on. Um, so both city and Cargilline was a growing town I was living there then at that stage yeah. Passage West I would have been strong in and um, it came down to myself or Deirdre Ford she was in Fianna Fáil at the time okay, yeah. and we both contested the local elections in 2004 my first county council election and I, we both probably knew that whoever came out on top in that was the front runner to win a nomination Yeah, and um, I came out in front by about a thousand votes and it was an interview uh, and the selection convention just selected to two sitting TDs it was left up to the party centrally then nationally to add a further candidate and so I would have thought God you know 
they're going to have to go for a woman. They need gender balance on the ticket. Yeah. It wasn't as much of an issue then as it has become, rightly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if that was today, it probably wouldn't have been selected. Yeah. Yeah. If three men on a ticket, you know, yeah. is, is not really on. No. And um, But uh, I would have went through an interview, would have met Bertie Ahern, who was the then Taoiseach. Yeah. Would have made my case, would have made a presentation yeah. about how I was going to get elected yeah. uh, and so on. And um, they selected me in, I think it was December uh, 2005. And in the end, the election was May 2007. So it was an 18 month run in uh, to the election where I basically went at it full time. And uh, some years prior to that, yeah. for full disclosure, I went over to uh, the clinic in Cargilline of a TD uh, called Michal Martin yeah. and I asked him for a bit of advice yeah. I was say maybe um, maybe 1920 at the time yeah no more than that certainly and uh, fairness he was very positive would have explained how it worked to me said yeah. look you need to join the, the, the local common he told me who was involved in the common in my area yeah I knocked on the door I happened to know who they were but I didn't know that they were in the common I yeah. went down to the Foy family, Michael and Anne Foy, who would have been great supporters of, of Michal. Yeah. But they were just literally a few hundred metres down the road from where I lived. Yeah. Knocked on the door, had a big chat. They welcomed me into the, the local common and the story went on from there. So the 18 month running, what's involved in that then, Michael? Hard, hard slog. Knocking yeah. on doors? Yeah, knocking on doors. Yeah. Um, you know, doing up election material, building a team. Yeah. Dealing with the, the, the reps, as we call them, the representations that you pick up. But doing it when you've no secretarial support. So yeah. long hours, uh, hard graft, you know, getting out there and meeting people, being involved in, in clubs and groups, going to lots of meetings, distributing leaflets and newsletters, just trying to get yourself known in a wider area because yeah. it's fine to be known in Passage West, at Cargilline, yeah. not enough to get you elected to the Dáil. Yeah. That's the reality. Yeah. And um, that was the challenge I faced. So, yeah, a lot of hard work, but I had a great team, great support with me. Starting with my family and uh, and uh, party members and and friends. And at that time, I'm guessing back in 2005 to 2007, we were on the crest of a wave. The country was in the middle of the Celtic Tiger. Everyone was probably in great form when you knocked on doors. In many ways, were they? Yeah, but you know, even then, there would have been there would have been challenges. Yeah, and uh, you know, you have internal competition as well. Of course. So you know, Fianna Fáil would not be guaranteed getting. Uh, getting three seats and yeah. so on yeah and um, deja vu in many ways the cost of housing would have been an issue it was probably at the height of the Celtic Tiger property prices you know really high but there would have been a very high level of employment mm. Um, you, you remember the whole kind of rip off Ireland and yeah so you yeah. know cost of living uh, housing was a huge huge issue but then a lot of local issues development pressures mm. you know uh, infrastructure services mm. uh, amenities in in the area where I was based in Cargilline schools Passage. and things like schools, that schools all yeah. those local issues those those pressure points uh, would have been very much there so came to the election what was it like when you actually got elected I'd imagine the day of the count was was nerve-wracking was it after giving up the job two years previously you know like what, what was that day like Oh, absolutely nerve wracking, yeah. And like the the tallies are extraordinary. It's a remarkable process, and you you do see the trend very very early on. And normally politicians don't go in very early to the tallies, but I think I was 
in there early. I was there waiting for the boxes to be turned upside yeah. down and, and, and you see the, the ballot papers being opened up and the, the tally men and tally women are doing their job and it was done on a on a combined basis um, between all the main parties. So it was done really well, very high standard. Yeah. And uh, I think it, the trend became clear pretty quickly that I was doing well and I was picking up votes in the city. That for me was always the key challenge was would I pick up a few percent in every box in the city yeah. where I wasn't as well known uh, yeah. and I did. And then my local boxes were extraordinarily good to me in Passage and Cargilline. And uh, I got I got a really good vote and I got elected. A lot of celebration that night. Yeah, for sure. Uh, for sure. Uh, would have went to um, the GA Club in Passage for a while. I would have went to the hotel in, in Cargilline. Two areas I would have been, you know, strongly associated yeah, with. Yeah. And um, yeah, big celebrations. I mean, it's when you look back at it, it's it's an incredible achievement, you know, yeah. and it is it is a great honour to be elected by your 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 neighbours by your yeah, peers by yeah. people in your own community to get I think it was almost ten thousand votes well, in the first general election uh, was remarkable when I look yeah, back at it yeah. in, in many ways and uh, very very humbling that that number of people like I know you go to to Turner's Cross as do yeah, I you think yeah. of almost two full Turner's Cross yeah, you know yeah. turning up yeah to go out of their way yeah uh, on one particular day. And to go in and give you a number one vote, not to mention all the people who give you a two and a three and a four, yeah. which are all appreciated yeah, and yeah. Uh, and very often needed as well, uh, as they were the last time. And uh, so very, very humbling. And, you know, then you've the first day in the doll and, and, and your your family or, you know, my mum and, and so on. Uh, obviously, Sarah and uh, we had two kids at that at that stage. Yeah. Great, great day. And then very steep learning curve then. And every when you turn up, then. All the the experience CDs tell you the hardest election now is your second election. Yeah. And you're just after climbing Everest, yeah. you know. Yeah. They bring yeah. you right back down yeah. to earth yeah. on day one and tell you now, now, great yeah. stuff, well done now, but the next one is going to be your hard one. And and I didn't realise then how right they would be. <laughs> but like when you go in in those early days, uh, like, is there a bit of a click on the inside? Like, are, like you know, we, we established TDs in the dial. Do you feel like the the outsider coming in, the, the new boy? You know, how does that work? Uh, you do. Now, thankfully, there would have been a number of others who yeah. were elected for, for the first time and some of whom are still there and would, would be friends of mine. So, yeah. you know, you tend to I suppose, gather around each other. People yeah. who are all finding out the basics for the very first time, getting an office up there and, yeah. you know, being given equipment and be given uh, an Iraqtis.ie address and... And then I had to get a constituency office and I had to find staff and, you know, you've all of those issues and then learning procedures, doll procedures and how all of that works and how you get an opportunity to speak, how you put in parliamentary questions, how you get on an Oireachtas committee and how you contribute to the committee. And then you have the whole parliamentary party dynamic. And like in those days, the Fianna Fáil parliamentary party was a very, very big animal, mm. uh, you know, 70 odd TDs. You know, Sorry, but, 30, yeah. 40 senators or whatever. Yeah. Bertie Hearn was the Taoiseach for the first year of my time there. Yeah. So it would have been fascinating to watch him in action in a private meeting. Yeah. Not really having known him at all. Yeah. Uh, seeing all the different dynamics, different camps to an extent, mm. uh, seeing dissent, seeing how it was handled. Yeah. Uh, and you, you learn a lot from it. 
and then 2008 came. So you're only in the door a year and we had the financial crash. Yeah, devastating crash. Um, Huge devastating crash, you know, yeah. global financial crash, but particularly bad in Ireland because yeah. of the over-dependence on, on property yeah. and on construction mm. and the collapse blew a massive hole in the public finances and obviously Fianna Fáil had to take uh, a share of the responsibility for yeah. that and yeah. I would have become quite close to Brian Lenehan uh, yeah. because uh, I think he recognised, you know, I had some financial background. I was yeah. able to go on shows and uh, and do interviews and, and explain policy and explain what we were trying to do. So we got close to him yeah. and his photo of him hangs in my office in, in the department yeah. uh, to this day. Uh, would have got very friendly with him, but saw the enormous strain that, that, that he was under, yeah. uh, that the government was under and uh, the decision to guarantee the liabilities at the banks and guarantee deposits. Yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, a new teacher came in, in Brian Cowan yeah. in May of 2008. So I was there for that, that handover. Yeah which was, you know, a great experience to be there to see how it all worked. And there was a vote at that time, was there? Or, or did he just get straight in? He was unanimous. Or was it unanimous yeah. at the time? Yeah, yeah. There was no one no yeah. one could have challenged him. They wouldn't have had a hope at that stage. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so he came in and had a very different style. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the world was turned upside down within months. Yeah. Uh, and then I suppose we, it was like a slow crash then through 2009 you know, austerity, financial mm. emergency measures, legislation, cuts to public service pay, cuts to welfare, cuts to services, cuts in spending, taxes being hiked up, mm. you know, USC coming in. Yeah. Really, really difficult. And then, of course, 2010, it ended up with uh, a bailout uh, because the financial markets lost confidence in Ireland. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you could go into various aspects uh, as to why I do think in many respects that that was a, an engineered position yeah. uh, internationally. Yeah. There had to be some fall guys mm. uh, and Ireland was one we of them. We were one of them, yeah. And it suited, some, uh, it suited some in Europe that Ireland would end up in a bailout uh, and, uh, you know, being forced to pay bondholders in full. Mm. Uh, and all of that changed subsequently, but that was the position at the time. Ireland wasn't allowed to impose burden sharing on bondholders. Ireland ended up in, uh, in a bailout. So, we very, very quickly then ended up in a general election. The government was falling apart. The last act of the government was to bring in a, a six billion euro of cuts. Uh, and we no sooner had that been passed, were on the doorsteps canvassing. And it was the harshest election environment I've ever experienced. And I look back to this day and think it was a miracle how I, how I survived and got elected. And I think the only reason I did was just personal track record and work ethic yeah. and having having worked for enough people and helped enough people and having had a you know decent reputation locally yeah i survived and took the final seat and uh yeah my vote would have fallen you know very significantly from 2007 even though i did absolutely nothing wrong personally it's when the tide is out it's out but it was one of only i think two or three constituencies in the country or where we got uh, two seats did you get abuse at the doors Oh yeah, we got ran from doors. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. How, and I don't blame that, I don't blame people, you know, because people's livelihoods yeah. were in many instances taken from them yeah. and their incomes were cut and their their well-being and what they could do for their family was, you know, was impacted in a very very detrimental way 
and they blamed the government and look the government was absolutely in part responsible there were other factors but when you're in government you have to accept responsibility yeah and um there was a price to be paid and the price was 50 odd TDs losing their seats in fall being returned with uh, 19 TDs and having left with 70 odd uh, so it was it was a very tough election I would have knocked on doors the door would open it would be somebody I would know well and I think oh thank God yeah and I wouldn't have got the reception I was expecting even though I would have known them because you know they were hurting yeah. and they were hurting and they just said no Michael not happening sorry not this time can't do it and um, look I still when I look back how I got over 7,000 number ones in that general election Michal had just become the leader of the party yeah and I think got a would have got a bounce from that yeah uh, and did, did, did well in the election and um, I, I could very easily have, have lost out and if I did not sure what would have happened you know would, would I ever have been able to come back mm. Shannon probably wouldn't have been an option um, because um, there would have been so many going for it uh, so yeah that was a real turning point. It could have gone back to the drawing board, possibly go back into a financial career at that stage. Yeah, I mean, I had no job to go to, yeah. so I would have been looking for a job. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, but you're, you're a few years gone from a career. I would have left yeah. in, in 2005. Yeah. And this was 2011. Yeah. So, you know, you become kind of out of date yeah. uh, in many ways. Your qualification, yeah. you'd have to, you know, upgrade all of that and, 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 and refresh it and so on. So I genuinely don't know what would have happened uh, if I lost my seat. But uh, look, we'd have survived and I would have wanted to have kept going and, yeah. and would have tried to find a way, but wouldn't have had any income. So you're back into trying to get some income to reinvest in politics and rebuild it. Mm. Uh, look, thankfully, I didn't have to do that. And then on the positive side, because we were devastated as a party, yeah, it was a huge opportunity. I was one of 19 and Brian Lenehan died in, in June after the election and I was appointed the spokesperson on finance for the party um, because I you know I had I suppose the background the qualification yeah. some business yeah. experience and would have been the obvious person in many ways uh, and that was the start then of a long journey of rebuilding the party I responded to the following nine budgets uh, mm -hmm. from opposition as the opposition spokesperson on finance yeah. and uh, you know we had a really good election in 2016 could have went into power uh, with Fine Gael at the yeah, time, yeah, but chose not to and did a confidence and supply agreement for four years, yeah, as you know, where we facilitated and supported the government and kept them in office in essence, be primarily because of Brexit. So a, a very long period. Uh, I did did very well in the 2016 election. Vote strongly recovered. Yeah, and did really well. But yeah, uh, spent a long time then just rebuilding locally, nationally, trying to help the party to rebuild its credibility and so I had to speak for the party on economic and financial issues yeah. which was its Achilles heel Yeah, and so it felt to me to rebuild the brand and to rebuild trust among the public that we could be trusted again in power. And it was kind of trying to build like a, a new version of Fianna Fáil really wasn't it like with people like yourself at the, at the front of that? Absolutely yeah and people would have you know taken a lot of convincing to do there would mm. obviously have been a hardcore base of support yeah. there yeah and you know a lot of people would have not have voted for us in 2011 for the first time ever yeah so you know winning them back you would think would be doable so yeah. we, we we did manage to win some of them back and win some win some new voters uh as well and uh, so it was very difficult then we we had the, the four years of the confidence and supply where 
you know, I would have been negotiating with Michael Noonan, with Pascal Donoghue. Uh, we would have had a certain level of input into the budgets. I yeah. wouldn't overstate it, but we had we had some. They had to engage with us at least. We had to abstain from the budget vote okay. for it to pass, and we kept yeah. that government in office. But in many ways, that was a frustrating period because you were you were close to power, close mm. to being able to actually get things done, but you weren't in office. Yeah, yeah, kind of frustrating as well at the same time. Because you feel like you're doing the same job for nine years and not getting anywhere. Yeah. I'd yeah. imagine. 2020, the election comes and it's a good election, but not a great election for you, I'd imagine. It was a poor election, yeah. to be honest. We lost seats. Yeah. And, you know, coming from being a party in opposition, that shouldn't be the case. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a very early poll on the Sunday Times that put us really high, mid-30s percentage-wise. And I, I think the general view was that Fianna Fáil was going to have a really good election. and. Uh, and come into power and lead a government and maybe maybe an element of complacency set in yeah maybe we were some would say too cautious in the campaign itself the, the, the Sinn Féin surge was growing during the campaign yeah it was late and I think it uh, it peaked on election day and they had an, an incredible election we had a, a very disappointing election lost some very good colleagues uh, lost seats, unfortunately, and uh, ended up in a position then where we had to negotiate a three-party coalition government. And that was strange. So the guys that you were in conversation with and thinking of Pascal O'Donoghue and stuff, all of a sudden now you kind of had to have a conversation about where they went to power with each other. And that's something that would never have been the case between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. That's right, so, yeah. And yeah. you were part of that conversation. Yeah, very much part of those negotiations as I was in 2016 on confidence and supply. So, yeah, it went on a long time because COVID hit then, yes. you see, in March of 2020. The yeah. election was early February. So it was a tricky period because we had to support the government and everything that they were doing. Yeah. But the ability of the, the government and the Oireachtas to get certain things done was mm. limited because they were, in effect, a caretaker government. Yeah. You know, we, we don't have that technical term in Ireland. Um, there's always a government in office, but in effect, you know, they, they didn't have a mandate or they didn't have certain powers really. So um, it took until late June. We actually entered government, but we had to negotiate and agree a programme for government. We had to put that to our members in a uh, in a vote. Yeah. And we had to go and sell it and so on. And they voted for it overwhelmingly. And so 27th of June 2020, we entered government. And it was kind of like nearly 100 years. Was it wasn't exactly... Exactly, but the whole civil war and Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, but they're eventually coming together again. And uh, I'd say it was tough for some of the older members. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and even some of our elected members, you yeah. know, would have been against it. Yeah. And would have argued against it. Yeah. Um, but the truth is that th there was very little alternative at that point yeah. to uh, to getting a government formed. And so we, we had to make the step and we got strong support from the party. And then, of course, you had the negotiation of uh, of a rotating Taoiseach as well, which is just about to come to fruition Yeah. now with the handover on the 17th of, of December. So, uh, yeah, it was challenging for a lot of people, but a government had to be formed. Uh, mm. The hatchet had to be buried. Uh, we did prove that we could work together during confidence and supply. Yeah. This was a bigger step, yeah. much, you know, a further step into a full coalition. But, you know, it's worked well and generally relations are, are, are quite good. And then you get your first ministerial role. First ministerial role, um, a long apprenticeship, you know, which is yeah, great because, yeah. you know, that gives you experience. Yeah. And I think it means you can hit the ground running. Mm. And um, 
the, the first task we had because there were certain things the government couldn't do, uh, the, 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 the caretaker government, we had to pull together a package of five and a half billion in a few weeks, mm. which would be larger than any previous budget in yeah. effect uh, of new measures. We had to do that in July of 2020, you know, bringing in new schemes, new supports. So I was straight into intense meetings with officials, with cabinet colleagues, you know, sitting around the cabinet table. It is surreal, you know, having been across the chamber from a lot of these people for a long number of years, looking yeah. at them and then you're in the room with them yeah. and you're having to talk to them. You have to work with them. You have to negotiate, compromise, get yeah. things done. It is. It was surreal for, for months. And did that experience in the commercial world kind of in many ways help you then be sympathetic towards those small businesses and you know, you Jordan putting those packages together, you know, the, the various subsidies and stuff like that. Oh, definitely, because, you know, when I was working in, in, in Red FM, you know, we would have had to manage cash yeah. and we had to make sure that we had the resources to pay the wages and yeah. manage, you know, the payment of creditors yeah. uh, as best you could with the resources that you had. So I did have a real life understanding and definitely the, the training as a chartered accountant and the work in KPMG was invaluable as well. And it's a fantastic training because it, it gives you the ability just to get to the nub of an issue quickly and to understand numbers and to understand uh, financial concepts yeah. and financial reality. So, yeah, I'd be very pro-business because I see it as pro-jobs. Yeah. You know, businesses employ people. Yeah. And, um, you know, once once we maintain employment in Ireland, I think we can get through anything else. But if you don't have that, if you have, you know, job losses, and high unemployment, that, that, that spirals, that problem spirals and it, it's toxic. So you have to keep people at work. And were you afraid that we were going to have job losses left, right and centre at the time? Like, was there a serious fear in government? Yeah, I mean, at its peak, there were about 600,000 people on the, on the PUP. Yeah. You know, over its, over its short lifetime, about 900,000 different yeah. people were on it at one point or another. So literally, within days, hundreds of thousands of people lost their job and so if you had said that a government would step in and pay the private sector wages of employees like no one ever thought that that would happen but it did happen and it was the right thing to do it was different to what they did in the UK where they paid people to be furloughed to yeah. leave the job in effect we paid people to go to work or to at least maintain that connection that relationship yeah. which we felt would make it easier to rebuild yeah and that, that exactly proved to be the case. Were you surprised at the success of it? Of the handling of the pandemic? Yeah, in terms of businesses bouncing back so quick. I mean... Yeah, it did, it, yeah, it did, it did exceed even, even our expectations. You know, we thought we'd hit maybe two and a half million people employed by 2024. We hit it in 2022. We yeah. hit it this year. So yeah, the, 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 the depth and the pace of the recovery, I think, surprised everyone. Uh, including us, yeah, absolutely put our hands up and acknowledge that. But that was a positive and most, the overwhelming majority of businesses survived. Yeah. And uh, they face a different challenge now, obviously, in terms of energy and the cost of uh, of living and so on. And we're going to have to respond to that as well. A lot of serious things have happened in, in such a small space of time. If, if you go back to 2016 with Brexit and then you have COVID and then you have the war in Ukraine. Yep. External factors that are impacting as such on, on, on the country that are, yeah. are out of your control. Sure, it's unbelievable, really, when you think about it. Like Brexit, 
you know, your nearest neighbor, biggest trading partner at country level, leaving the single market. Yeah. A global pandemic like of which we've never seen before, yeah. well, maybe a hundred years ago. But, yeah. you know, for a century, you look back at the videos of Patrick Street or Connell Street, just no one on them. Like, yeah. it's unbelievable yeah. when you think about it. Yeah. Uh, we never thought we'd see anything like that. And then and then a brutal war in Europe. Yeah. All in the space of a few years. It It is extraordinary what we've had to, to deal with as a people. Yeah. And look, I think in Ireland, collectively, we can be very proud as a people of what, how we've handled it, mm. you know, and uh, we're still standing. We continue to face challenges, but we'll respond to them. We are a resilient people and the, the government has to have people's back. We have to look after people as best we can. And that, that's what we've been trying to do in the, in the recent budget. I'd imagine sometimes there's no winning as well, though, in politics. Is there like, you know, no matter what you do, there's always somebody going to be criticising you, is there? Ah, yeah, for sure. Uh, look, that's that's par for the course, as they say. Yeah. And I wouldn't have a particularly thick neck, but you you do have to yeah. try to ignore it, you know. Yeah. Now, I suppose ignore, not fair criticism. I would always listen to that and take it on board. But, you know, the social media and, and that stuff can be toxic. And yeah. you, you do need to just try and switch that off and ignore it because a lot of it isn't real. They're not real people, a lot of, you know. Yeah. And a lot of it is, is orchestrated, but that can be difficult. And that's a new thing that wasn't there when I first went into national politics. So I think it's got harder for new TDs and young TDs coming in. Uh, they have to deal with that whole dimension now. And it has made politics ultra 24-7 because messages are coming in literally constantly. And you have so many more platforms now through which people can reach out to you and contact you. And you have to weed through sometimes the just the the utter abuse yeah. to get to a genuine message where somebody needs help. Yeah. And that, that can be difficult. You know, you could be at home on a Saturday evening, you check your email or you check your, you know, messenger. You could have an absolute stinker of a message. Yeah. It could be utterly vulgar. Yeah. And the next one could be somebody who is in dire need of help and who's genuinely reaching out to you. Yeah. So you, you have to be able to process all of that and uh, almost compartmentalize it in some ways and deal with the message that requires help and just try to cleanse the other one from your mind and ignore it. And how do you process that, Michael? Like, in terms of, like, the abuse coming, like, we see with teenagers today even, they're, yeah. you know, like, the online bullying and stuff like that. Yeah. But even even as an adult, grown man, how do you process that? Like, face that every single day? Look, you just have to keep turning up. You just have to be resilient. You keep going. You focus, yeah. focus on what matters. And I focus on my contact with real people yeah. like I walk the South Mall I walk down the street of Cargilline or True Passage yeah. I get very little negativity yeah. not to mention any abuse Yeah, you know so real people are incredibly nice they might give you an issue or give you a problem to try and fix or they might give you feedback or they might give out to you Yeah, but it's nothing like the online world so I kind of judge it by real life experience and I, I just look at the the, the feeds on some of the platforms online and I just say that's not real that's not real it's not my real world experience yeah yeah. you know you get the very very odd one in, in real life of course you do yeah Um, but thankfully that has been very very few and far between where you'd have abuse and shouting and so on that's very 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 rare so in many ways the digital world is probably a bit cowardly where people are kind of will say stuff that they'd never say to you there's no doubt look there's no doubt and I, you know I can handle it but I, I, I do really worry for 
people who can't not you know not so much in politics because they're generally a thick neck but younger people and yeah uh, yeah other people who come into public life in different ways yeah. you know who maybe don't want to be a public figure but become public figures by accident maybe by accident by yeah. an achievement or by just uh, an event or whatever uh, and they're open to all of that um but as i say it doesn't reflect society it yeah. doesn't reflect the reality and that's i just keep going back to that because that's what gives me the comfort mm. to say look just bloody ignore it it's not the real world but on the flip side of it then i presume from a marketing perspective for yourself and Fianna Fáil, you kind of have to embrace it as well you do because again the vast majority of people on it are genuine people yeah you know and they use it for all the positive things the social media offers yeah it's not all negative i don't want to say it is really really positive as well and a great way to communicate so yeah I, I, I do use social media Um, I don't obsess about it I, yeah. I wouldn't obsess about it because there are ups and downs to it and there are limitations to it yeah. Um, but I do use it Um, Twitter Instagram Facebook uh, LinkedIn particularly on the business side of it and yeah. relevant to my portfolio I don't do TikTok or not yet anyway no dancing anyway. Right? Um, so yeah I should look but there are only so many hours in the day. You there know? Is, yeah. There's so much you can do. Yeah. And do you do it yourself or do you have to have a team helping you? I do a lot of it. I do most of it myself, yeah. actually. Yeah. And because I made the decision in becoming a minister, you're, you're allowed to appoint two people. Yeah. Most people appoint a media person and yeah. a policy person. Yeah. I appointed two policy people for different reasons. And they're two exceptional people who I had worked with in the past and yeah. felt a sense of loyalty to. And I, I wanted to place the emphasis on substance as well. Yeah. So uh, then you're so then in terms of media, you're relying on the, the department does have a press function. Yeah. And then I have my own staff in the office, though they are ran off their feet with um, actual constituency problems, you yeah. know, uh, trying to deal with them. So, no, I do. I do do it myself. I do a good share of it. Yeah. Yeah, because you seem to be quite active in, in particular. I think LinkedIn, obviously, this is a business podcast in, in the main and LinkedIn is a business network. And I see you quite active on it. I like LinkedIn because you don't get the abuse. Yeah. You know, and if anyone tried it, they would be shot down, I'd shot imagine. down yeah. by, by others yeah. very, very quickly yeah. and would be told that's not on, that's yeah. not appropriate yeah. here, go on to another platform. And I suppose the nature of what I do is that a lot of it is business related. So there, there's a natural uh, synergy there. But I do find it a good platform because you can put up a post and I don't have to be checking every five minutes. Are there really negative hostile, hostile comments yeah. I don't mind if someone puts up a negative comment on Facebook whatever I, I'll take it on the chin I'll leave yeah. it there yeah. that's fine but if they start using language bad language or they're vulgar I will take it down Yeah, and uh, I won't apologise for yeah. that yeah. but you never get that on LinkedIn no and you know. so I'd imagine Facebook and Twitter are probably the worst for the negative stuff Twitter's the worst yes I think because yeah. there's a lot of kind of anonymous accounts on Twitter that yeah. you won't get on the other platforms exactly yeah yeah, yeah. there's no doubt Twitter is a fantastic platform to get a message out quickly. Yeah. Uh, it's fantastic for incoming messages in terms of news and Great keeping for up news, to date with yeah, things and yeah. trying to follow events. Yeah. You know, it's, it's rapid fire, but um, yeah, you're wide open if you put up something. Yeah. So you said, well, ago, the 17th, there's a handover. I suppose we get a new Taoiseach, but does that mean a new role for yourself as well? Or, like there's rumours that you're going to take over as Minister for Finance, is, is that confirmed? Th that's not confirmed. Okay. That's going to be up to the, the current uh, Taoiseach to decide his team. His team. Um, but it is confirmed that the uh, the Department of Finance and the Department of 
public expenditure reform will rotate between okay. Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. So uh, there will be a Fianna Fáil um, Minister for Finance. Do I hope that's going to be me? Of course I do. Uh, yeah. And look, I'd love that role. It's the one I've been preparing for for a very long time. But yeah. um, I have to respect the process and respect the, the right of the, the current Taoiseach to make his decision. And, um, you know, he'll make the best decision he can. But, yeah, I'd love it. What's the difference between the two roles? Because from the outside, we see both of you presenting on the budget and I know, sure, yeah, you, you know, it, there is a bit of confusion there. Yeah, so up to 2011, it was one department. It was yeah. the Department of Finance and the Troika came in and a view was taken that there should be two departments. And I think in truth, the um, the, the design of public expenditure reform was trying to get a handle on, on spending, to have one department that was focused on spending. Of course, for those okay. years, it was about kind of cuts and, and so yeah. on. So the, the division really is that the Department of Finance has overall um, economic and budgetary responsibility. So overall responsibility for the economy, yeah. overall responsibility for the national finances and would manage um, the international relations of the IMF, the World Bank, okay. uh, would attend the Eurogroup, the ECOFIN, yeah. uh, would be responsible for tax, so the revenue side, um, uh, financial services uh, and so on. Public expenditure reform primarily is about managing spending. Um, and also has responsibility for public service pay and pension policy, yeah. national development plan, which is our capital program, also the reform program across the uh, the civil service, government procurement uh, as well. So a whole range of different areas. But in effect, the, the Minister for Finance has that overall responsibility and sets the expenditure limit. And then the Minister for Public Expenditure manages uh, public spending within that limit. Okay. That's the essence of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But they work very closely together and they have to. Government won't work at all if those two departments and, and those two ministers don't get on well and function well. And thankfully, Pascal and I have worked really well together. And I'd imagine those years where you were kind of, you know, supporting them in the background as such between 2016 yeah. and 2020, that helped as well because you got helped. a better relationship. You get to know somebody yeah. and uh, you get to, to learn how they do their business and you, you get to learn to to trust them and, and hopefully respect them. And, and that was certainly the case um, with Pascal. And so we do work well together. We're from different parties. We're someday going to have to take each other on in debates and mm. that's all fine. We'll do that. You know, it's like club players coming together, players from different clubs coming together to play for their country. It's a bit yeah. like that. You know, and then they go back to their club and yeah. they might have to kick lumps out of each other, you know. Uh, so, um, yeah, we'll see what happens on the 17th, but but there will be change and uh, it'll, it'll be a very big day. And going forward then, I suppose, the next election, would you be confident going forward? Is it, I suppose with the energy crisis, with everything that's coming along, we potentially could face, do you think we're going to face a recession at some point? Or Yeah, look, next election hopefully is a long way away. It yeah. can go as late as spring 2025. So okay. it's got a bit of distance to go yet. I think it's about delivering. It's in particular housing. We have to make progress in housing. Um, a lot of young people feel it's hopeless at the moment and we have yeah. to give them hope and we have to yeah. build a lot more homes. So I think that is critical really uh, to our prospects, but more importantly, it's the right thing to do and it has to be done for society and for the economy as well. I think there's a general recognition that COVID was handled well. Mm. Uh, I think the budget in late September landed quite well overall mm. and the economy is in good shape. Ireland is an outlier now in a positive sense. Many of our trading partners are in recession, others will go into recession. You know, we might go into recession, but recession doesn't always mean huge job losses. Yeah. You know, it can mean lots of different things. 
for me, the fundamental thing is about employment and keeping yeah. people at work. And all the indications are that we uh, will come through this in good shape. We are still forecasting growth in Ireland, uh, which is really positive. We had more labour numbers yesterday. The number actually increased by over 80,000 in the last quarter or so. We're bucking the trend. We're not immune from what's happening internationally. It is affecting us. We're seeing it in tech, for example. Um, but I think overall, we, we'll be okay. And what about, I suppose, the country in general? Will we still be very reliant on overseas uh, investment or will we start looking internally to see how we can progress indigenous industries and stuff like that as well? We have to do both. You know, foreign direct investment is a huge driver of economic mm. activity in Ireland uh, and it's powering ahead. Mm. I know we've had some setbacks in tech, but other jobs are being created there. I spoke at the American Chamber Thanksgiving lunch there just uh, during the week and the number of jobs being created, like it's gone from 160,000 people directly employed by US multinationals yeah. three years ago. It'll be 200,000 by the end of next month. Yeah. Like that's a quarter of an increase during COVID. Yeah. It's extraordinary. And it's yeah. across a range of sectors. But we have to be careful about over-dependence, about corporate tax receipts, the over-concentration mm. of them in a small number of companies. So you're right, we do need to nurture and build a very strong domestic indigenous enterprise ecosystem and you know that will be a key focus of my work i hope over the next 12 months or so we'll be examining all of the different schemes that are there to see how we can improve them we want startups to select ireland as their base mm. but we want them to scale up in ireland to become big businesses here in ireland rather than selling up or relocating uh, and scaling up in another jurisdiction so that involves looking at lots of dis different instruments obviously i'm a bit biased because we're based in cork what about the future of Cork and business? It seems to be growing at the moment. Yeah, Cork's in a good place overall yeah. uh, and it's it's viewed very favourably uh, elsewhere in the country. Uh, people say to me all the time, God, Cork is flying. Mm. No, no, we have challenges. Of course we do. Uh, and I know, you know, in the city centre, it would be great to see the likes of the old Debenhams building get occupied and, yeah. um, and vacant units getting turned around. But I see an awful lot of investment coming into Cork all the time. We're putting in a lot of public money in terms of infrastructure yeah. and investment and transport and the docklands. We do need to get more people living back in the city centre. Mm. So apartment developments will need to be built. Yeah. There are real viability challenges there at the moment. We need to try and crack that um, and get more people back living over shops, over offices. Yeah. I think there's a lot of opportunity. But uh, the outlook is positive for Cork and I'm always looking out for opportunities for Cork from the point of view of investment, both public investment and private investment. Uh, and we'll continue to do that. And you always have to have that kind of hat on as well because you are still representing your constituents in South Central. You have to think about them. I know you're thinking about the national picture, but you have to have them in the back of your mind as well. It's always part of, of who you are uh, and that's where you get your, your mandate and that's yeah. where you get your power. You're not going to be a TD, not to mention a minister without support uh, in Cork. So, of course, you always look out for the best interests of Cork. But when you are a minister, it is a national portfolio. You are a minister for the entire country. Uh, and you do have to be fair and even-handed, and I, I think I am. But you can never take Cork out of you, that's for sure. And does the Cork Taoiseach leaving, would you have aspirations to be the next one in a couple of years' time? It's hard to say, Stephen. You know, um, we have we have a, a large family and still a relatively young family. Yeah. And I've always taken the view that we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Yeah. And I just, in my day-to-day -day work, I just see life being so uncertain, so unpredictable. Yeah. Um, you know, you see people that you lose um, yeah. at a young age and I just see the kind of futility in planning too far ahead in many ways, you know, and I've always said I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. I've 
fully support the current Taoiseach and yeah. will continue to support him for as long as he wants to lead the party and he has said he wants to lead the party into the next election and uh, he'll have my backing if that is what he wants to do. Uh, so I think it'll be a while away yet before yeah. an opportunity arises. Uh, when it does, yeah, I'll make a call on it at that point and um, obviously that would require some conversations uh, at home. And, Especially with a young family. You know, you need to know the mood of the party as yeah. well and, you know, and I suppose come to a view as to whether or not uh, you can offer something that isn't being offered by anybody else. And that, and that for me is probably the litmus test uh, when that opportunity does arise. Do I think I can offer something different and new, something additional uh, to what others can offer? And I think that's a judgment call you can only make at that time. But I certainly wouldn't be doing it out of any self-interest. That's not what motivates me. Never has been uh, and never will be. I'm privileged to have reached the level I've reached and uh, I've an open mind as to whether I want to take a further step and I I'll make that decision when the time comes. But, you know, I think you get more mature as time goes on and you, you try to live every day and enjoy every day and not always be looking ahead to things that might or might not happen. Yeah, enjoy the present. What do your kids make of it all? I I think they're kind of bemused by it in some ways, you yeah. know. Um, sometimes I'd hear them say that, oh, that their, their their cover was blown in school. Someone might say something in the class and yeah. they might like to be anonymous, you know. Yeah. I, I think they, they do take pride in it in some ways. Yeah. But in another way, they do pay the price for it because I'm away a lot and they'd say, oh, when are you coming home, yeah. Dad? And, you know, is it going to be Thursday this week or is it going to be Friday? You're going to get home. And yeah. So, you know, they do have that downside. Yeah. They get the upside too, of course. You yeah. know, it's a it's a really good job and yeah. and I think they, they do take pride in it. Yeah, but, you know, their views on the future would be important too and it's not really a conversation we've had yet. So... I like to finish the podcast with three different questions. Uh, I asked every guest the same question. So the first one is, what tip would you give a business? No, you're coming at it with a different angle. So you're coming at it from, I suppose, a ministerial level. Um, but I'm thinking about any business out there at the moment, maybe going through different challenges or whatever. What, what tip would you give them to grow? I think for many of them now it's about surviving yeah. um with the with the the inflation and the energy costs and they will know their own business better than anyone mm -hmm. and they'll know whether or not uh, it is viable I think they do need to to back themselves but they also have to be realistic yeah and I always advise people to get advice people always come to me for advice and I will give them you know certain pointers but I always say look get proper advice yeah there is so much knowledge and experience in cork in the business community yeah i would the best advice i can give is to go out and talk to people who have been through it yeah. and who will share their experience with you because it's very very unlikely that what you're experiencing now is the first time anyone's ever experienced it so that's the advice i'd give and the second question i'd have is what tip would you give an individual now in particular i'm thinking we might have young students listening to this. They might have an interest in politics. Yeah. What tip would you give them? In terms of entering politics? Yeah. Um, I would tell them that it's a great career. Yeah. Uh, it is uncertain and um, insecure mm. as a career. You shouldn't view it as a career. You know, it is a calling. Yeah. And every day that you get to serve as a politician is a privilege. And you should never assume that you're going to have many of those days. So... I would advise them, therefore, to try to become secure in other ways, as in 
get educated or develop yeah. a business opportunity or, yeah. or some particular skill, yeah. I think they would do need a fallback. Mm. That would be my honest advice um, because it it's a volatile line of work. And, you know, I've seen it myself, colleagues who did nothing wrong, just lost out because the tide was out yeah. uh, on the party and they're gone. And some of them end up in difficult situations, you know, financially and otherwise. So I, I would advise a young person, by all means, go for it. But have, have a, a have a fallback, have a backup plan. Uh, I think is is sensible, and I I would like to see more kind of mobility, as in more people coming in and out of politics. Um, I'd like to see people later in life come in, yeah, uh, yeah. and serve and bring their life experience and their success and, and their failures, yeah, uh, to the floor of the doll. I'd like to see that, but we don't tend to see much of that, and I, I'd like to see young people come in but maybe leave and maybe and come back else. in but yeah, yeah I, I just think mobility is important it, in the future I don't think it's the kind of career where people will go in for 30 years the last question I have is we have a new section on the on the show for this series and it's, <coughs> in, it's in partner with uh, our new show sponsor Skillsbase and it's what skill do you need and in particular I'm thinking of politics so what skill do you think is essential for politics you have to be good with people you know you have to Interpersonal think, skills. Yeah, you have to have a natural empathy and, and good interpersonal skills. Be a good listener. I think it's important. You know, you are a servant of the people. Mm. Uh, so it's not so much your own views or that really matter. Of course they do, but it's the people you represent. You have to be a good listener and you have to engage with people and you have to be kind and you have to be decent and be respectful. And I think the Irish people are generally very, very good at that. But I think those skills are important. And then in terms of survivability, it is it is resilience. Uh, you will have setbacks. You got to get back up again and keep going, and you got to keep turning up and be resilient. And I think that's good advice for people in life generally. It's certainly advice I give my own kids because you're going to have setbacks in life, and um, you just got to keep keep doing what you believe in. Michael, it's been fantastic to have you on the show. Best of luck in the coming weeks, and uh, hopefully we will see you as Minister for Finance by the end of the month. Thanks, Stephen. Really appreciate it. And thanks to all your listeners for listening. Thank you. That wraps up this week's podcast. Thanks again to our sponsor, Skillsbase app, which is a solutions provider for companies looking for mobile-first engagement and blended learning tools. To find out more information on what they can do, visit skillsbase.ie. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the show and get in contact with us on all social platforms. I will be back again next week with a brand new episode.